Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. There's precious little echoing in our collective narrative. In place of a chorus, there's an empty space. This program features the work of 2022 writer Emily Parzibach. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. First off, the the big question, tell me about your Jack Straw project. Yeah, it's the big question. It's also the one that I sort of have the hardest time answering, I guess, maybe. <laughs> but um, I think I've told you that I had the experience of reading what I wrote as my project application and being like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's really that's really smart and interesting. Like I felt like I hadn't written it and I was like, yeah, that I like that idea. Um, yeah, my project is about archetypes, in particular the feminine archetypes. And I'm mostly an essayist, although I sometimes write some kind of memoir-esque and um, prose-type poetry. And so a lot of it, I, I was sort of proposing to write essays centered around the female archetypes. And I think part of why I was thinking about it at the time that I wrote the application was that I had just read um, A Ghost in the Throat, which Mm -hmm. is this beautiful kind of memoir about a poem um, written by Mm -hmm. an Irish woman whose name I would absolutely butcher, um, but folks should look it up. And, um, And it's really, it's a super beautiful work and it begins with this is a female text and ends with this is a female text. And I was thinking a lot because of that about the ways that women have communicated orally Mm -hmm. and the ways that women's stories often exist sort of between the margins and the ways that in seeking out female experiences across time, I have to sort of intuit them. I think about too, I love to read biography and I think about Stacey Schiff's biography of Cleopatra, which is really Mm -hmm. excellent. And there are so many biographies of men and just so few really good ones of women in large part because we just don't have very much information. And Stacey Schiff does this beautiful job kind of, you know, from a scientific and researched place being like, well, it might have been this way or like maybe this thing. And I think that supposition is really interesting. And I saw something similar in A Ghost in the Throat. And so I was just thinking a lot about sort of the ways women's stories get told and the way stories get told about women And in particular, how those archetypes that show up over and over again are sort of both constraints and jumping off points for women's narratives. So I thought, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting to write about them. And I was thinking about them particularly because um, I'm a stepmother of sorts. I'm I'm not married to my partner, so I guess legally not. But um, in theory, I am a stepmother and I also have a stepmother. And so I was thinking a lot this year in particular about that archetype. Um, obviously we have a lot of cultural baggage about step-parents so, um, and stepmothers in particular. So I, I was curious about that as, as a more detailed thing. You mentioned uh, archetypes, and I, I want to kind of touch on that a little bit now. Has your attitudes towards these archetypes changed over your lifetime, particularly as you kind of enter and exit them yourself? Yes. I think to be female 
is to always be in relationship with archetypes and to forever be navigating them. And I mean that too, because I think, you know, um, how seriously you're taken, how much you're believed, how safe you are, all of those things um, have to do, I think, with those archetypes and those ideas that people are carrying. There's, they're really, so many things are really freighted with those. So I think, I think I'm always in relationship with those. I do think it's really changed. I think I've mentioned that I have some, what we would traditionally call maybe masculine traits. I'm, I'm really opinionated. I love a good argument. I have some sharp edges. You know, I'm, I'm pretty dominant. I like to be in charge. I'm sort of a benevolent dictator sometimes. So, (laughs) you know, I think like I, I show up in those ways. And, um, and so I think early on, I had a tendency to really reject any traditional female archetype. And I did that, I think, as a means to reach towards power and to sort of reach towards some kind of control or or safety or, or maybe just, you know, ability to self-define. And I think as I get older, I'm less interested in outright rejecting those narratives and I'm more interested in expanding them and, you know, sort of complicating them and making them really capacious. So yeah, I think I think I'm still in relationship with those archetypes, but maybe I'm less in antagonistic relationship with them and I'm more curious about them and I think I also you know, I think I think I've always had a really intuitive sense of where power sits. And so I think early on I felt like by aligning myself with certain kinds of femininity, I was weakening myself. And I think that as I get older, I see real power in femininity um that maybe is not you know, maybe has not been like traditionally part of the governing power that um, runs our society, but I think is is extremely, yeah, extremely interesting. And and so I, yeah, I'm curious about female power and where it sits. And I think that also makes me more curious about, you know, how femininity can look. And instead of sort of rejecting those those archetypes, like wondering you know, wondering what their depth is. You know, I personally, I think a lot about writing as almost like a form of inheritance that we leave our readers and as a parent, as just a person in this society, I think about our actions and our words and what we're leaving uh, future generations. As a writer, uh, what do you want to leave the audience with? Well, I think about the way that actually E.J. Coe talks about magnanimity and that in a poem and I know that she heard this from a different teacher so it's like a it's like a passed down learning but um but you know that that in a poem you either forgive or you forgive yourself for not being able to forgive and I really love that idea and so I think there's something that I want to happen by the end of an essay or or whatever I'm writing where there's like a grace and a beauty Um, And maybe there's not, I don't actually think I really want there to be like cleanness or tidiness. I think I often want there to be confusion and messiness, but of the kind that isn't painful, of the kind that is, you know, really um, like just really leave space for the mystery of being human (laughs) and just the, the real pain and beauty of not knowing or you know, knowing something differently than someone else does, or, you know, like the misalignment or the confusion or the, 
the regret or whatever it is. Um, I, I think I, I want all those things to be able to exist alongside grace. And, you know, I don't know that I always do that in my own life. <laughs> you know, I try to, but I don't know that I always do. And so I think in my writing, I really want to leave space for things to be complicated and beautiful at the same time. Now we'll hear a selection from Emily's live reading. Around the time I had an abortion, the bathroom drain gave up entirely. For months, the drain had been slow moving. I'd find myself in an inch of water at the end of a shower, shaking my feet as I placed them one at a time on the bath mat. Finally, it stopped draining altogether. A 90-second rinse left a pool in the tub that took hours to clear. In the TV show Russian Doll, a character says, nothing in this life is easy except peeing in the shower. And I kept remembering that line as I held my insistent bladder under the hot water and thought about whether or not to stay pregnant. I found out I was pregnant on a Thursday morning. The faint double lines confirmed what my body already knew. It was my first pregnancy. It had been the first time I had ever had questionably safe sex and thought, I don't need to take the morning after pill. It'll be fine. In the weeks that followed, I began to feel alienated in my own body, as if it didn't belong to me. My breasts swelled and disgusted me. I felt the way I once had during puberty when my breasts became embarrassing. The whole thing felt like a betrayal. My body began to unfold a story I hadn't co-written. My digestive system ground to a halt, and my breasts ached enough to keep me up nights. I desperately wanted to exit my body. Less than 10 minutes after the positive pregnancy test, I called Planned Parenthood to make an appointment for an abortion. They told me their next opening was in three weeks. And for those of you who are following, that's about to get a lot worse. The thought of letting errant hormones in my body grow exponentially made me physically sick. I called another clinic to schedule a medical abortion the following day. I wasn't sure if it was the right choice when I tried to logic it out, but my body screamed to be free of the pregnancy. At the abortion clinic, I sat in the initial waiting room. I've sometimes wondered in less loaded trips to the clinic waiting for a pap smear or treatment for a yeast infection, which women were waiting for an abortion? I don't wonder as I sit this time. In the waiting room, there's a man working on his laptop. There are several Latina women and another woman translating forms for them. We are not allowed to eat or drink water in deference to those whose procedures prohibit them from drinking and eating. I am thirsty. Two hours after my scheduled appointment time, I'm called back by a nurse. She guides me to another inner waiting room. Inside, I find a black woman on her cell phone, a woman in a hijab staring straight ahead, and a white woman dressed up in an Ann Taylor blouse and black slacks fiddling in her purse. The room has a television playing a reality TV program about people who win the lottery and use the money to buy their dream house. Simultaneously, a radio plays over the speakers in the ceiling. Both are turned to low volume, resulting in a low buzz of mostly indistinguishable noise. Being in that inner room, 
I feel calm for the first time in days, in company that can't judge me. There's no guesswork. We're all here for an abortion. We've all been here for hours. Between forays into our phones, we collectively gasp at the price of a six-bedroom home in Tennessee. Slowly, tepidly, we begin conversation. The $300,000 wouldn't buy a lot, let alone the house on it in Seattle. One woman has recently moved back in with her parents. A stylish black woman enters the room and we marvel aloud at the way she's managed to put together an outfit for the occasion. Most of us are in sweatpants, but she has on designer shoes and a neon jacket. I'm wearing an oversized sweater with rabbits on it. The stylish woman is visiting from Chicago, taking her art shoe on tour. I immediately like her because she makes a face when another woman in the room talks about driving 40 minutes every evening to make her boyfriend lunch for his job the next day. The artist doesn't have time for that bullshit, or the way my city is built around the desires of white men in outdoor gear. She hates the boutique breweries for people who own dogs and the lack of public transit. Says she could never move here. She's funny. If she wrote critiques of the city she visits, I'd read her blog. It feels good to think about white dudes drinking heavily hopped beers with their dogs because all I've thought about for days is the space between my navel and pubic bone and the way it would feel to press the tip of a knife into that soft skin. I'm afraid of blood, so I don't picture piercing, just a pressure from without to ease the pressure within. It's not unlike the relief of throwing up food you wish you hadn't eaten. When I'm finally on an exam table, four hours into my appointment, the technician tells me she can't find a pregnancy in my uterus on her screen. She tries an intravaginal ultrasound instead. I go numb while she penetrates me. Still nothing. It's early pregnancy. Maybe it's just not showing up yet. The doctor I consult with tells me it could be that I'm simply not far along enough to detect, or the pregnancy could be ectopic, growing outside of my uterus. She doubts it. Ectopic pregnancies are rare. She tells me I can wait a few weeks to figure it out, or I can go through with a medical abortion today. I swallow the pill. I didn't expect the shame I felt upon discovering my pregnancy. I'm surrounded by people who are pro-choice, but making the choice myself felt different, like I'd failed. The messages get in whether you subscribe to them or not, a slow seeping of shame. I'm consumed by shame and fear as I sit at home waiting to bleed. When I say I'm afraid of blood, what I mean is that I have a deep, unyielding phobia of my own blood. A cut finger leaves me paralyzed on the bathroom floor. My fingers curled into claws as I vomit. Having my blood drawn results in such severe panic that my body goes into shock. It usually takes me hours to leave the hospital. While my period has never bothered me, the warning from the nurses that I may bleed severely enough to require hospitalization does. I sit silently on the couch in panic that night. But as dark falls and through the days that follow, I never bleed, and this frightens me too. When I find out the pregnancy is ectopic two weeks later, I feel a kind of relief despite knowing that this news might mean surgery. This is an easier story. In the future, if I want, I can leave out the part where I had a medical abortion altogether. Instead, in this new narrative, I become that saintliest of all creatures, a thwarted would-be mother. Never mind that I don't particularly want to be a mother. I'm ambivalent enough that a few years ago, 
The mere idea of kids started a fracture that ended a decade-long relationship with the person I had imagined growing old with. I still sometimes picture our life together and wonder how I could have made it work. When I picture us together, I don't picture children. The thwarted mother story isn't true, but it will come in handy when I don't want to explain myself. I know the pregnancy is ectopic before the blood work confirms it because of a pinprick of sensation on my right side. When the clinic calls about my irregular blood work, they urge me to go to the emergency room as quickly as possible. Another day of waiting. This time with an IV in my arm under a heated blanket while Al Sharpton announces on television the conviction of Ahmaud Arbery's killers. As I type an update to my friends from the hospital bed, I discover that my phone doesn't recognize the word abortion. Instead, it leaves my misspellings of the word in place. Abortion is an error it doesn't acknowledge. My phone doesn't know the word fuck either, which makes me wonder if the people who programmed it decided abortion is a similarly dirty word. It's an erasure that's part of a larger project of erasure around women's experiences designed to make them feel alone and isolated. Long before iPhones and now through them, the stories of women's bodily experience have been told by men. Abortion is largely absent from these tales. I remember vividly the few films I've seen that reference it explicitly. It's a lonely, unmentionable kind of shame. There are unwanted pregnancies in our inherited mythologies, but they usually appear as the result of rape. While abortion is absent from the familiar stories and archetypes, rape and the loss of bodily control for women shows up time and time again. We seem to be comfortable enough daylighting the most shameful events of male behavior. Zeus rapes tens to hundreds of women, some asleep, some his children, some in different animal and human forms. He makes a menagerie of rape and remains all powerful. There are only three outcomes in mythology for a woman after she's raped. Pregnancy, transformation, or death. When a woman is raped by a god in Greek myth and becomes pregnant, she births a hero child. She carries within her body redemption for the crime committed against her. Giving birth is a redemptive act, we are asked to believe. We are not asked to consider whether or not the woman in question wanted to give birth. The redemption in question isn't for her, but for society at large. Her body is sacrificed first through violation and then as a vessel for the greater good. This narrative hasn't left us. In Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Mariska Hargitay's Olivia Benson puts predators behind bars, a kind of hero's redemption for a character conceived in rape. Those victims of Greek myth who don't birth hero children are left with two options. Some choose to abandon their physical form entirely. Female bodies are vulnerable to assault, so some women escape through metamorphosis and live life in another form. After her assault, Daphne becomes a laurel tree. She trades her very humanity for escape. The final option is death. Women don't, in any of these versions, gain mastery over their own bodies. As I begin to tell my own story to family and friends, it occurs to me that the destruction of self doesn't only happen through death, but through the storytelling. Parts of us die in certain tellings. Sometimes we kill parts of ourselves to survive our own stories. Sometimes we substitute a myth for reality. 
We answer the loss of bodily autonomy with a story of our own that arrives at some semblance of justice. Survivors of rape engage in storytelling. They become mythic. They become victims. Lonely, I look to the canon. Though women have been telling each other their stories for millennia, survivors of abortion don't have a celebrated myth or story to turn to. There's precious little echoing in our collective narrative. In place of a chorus, there's an empty space. Instead, there's an endless barrage of subtle reminders that you can't trust your body. Even the most minute systems are often designed to infantilize day-to-day decision-making. When I realized I was pregnant, I went to a local Walgreens to buy a pregnancy test to confirm. A box with two pregnancy tests costs $13, but the tests are kept under lock and key. In order to purchase a test, you have to ring a doorbell that pages the entire store, letting every shopper know that someone needs help with feminine care items. I pushed the button and paged the store four times before someone came, while a parade of customers gazed curiously down the aisle. Anyone can buy a $40 bottle of Advil without assistance, but I was required to ask an employee to unlock the $13 pregnancy test and escort me to the counter, holding the test in front of him so I could be rung up. You are not allowed to walk the test to the counter yourself without an escort, I asked. Throughout the process of deciding to end a pregnancy, I was surprised how often I just wanted to be left alone. Sitting back in the abortion clinic, I did feel relief to be among women in the same situation as me. But I had another darker feeling too. This was my first pregnancy. How many of these women had been here before? I wondered. It seems like an innocuous enough curiosity, but it had a sinister underbelly. Which of us was the least bad, I meant. Which of us had made an understandable mistake and which of us just never learned? I don't like these thoughts, but I own that I had them at my most pained and frightened. When I try to understand why, I can only think that I wanted to be able to still conceive of myself as good. I was reaching for a redeeming story. In a location where everyone is already condemned, I wanted to be the exception to the rule. I forgot in that moment that our collective liberation is the only liberation. I forgot that accusing those women to spare myself only reinforces a setup where any of us are judged at all. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. Produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, 
the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.